Good morning. As Mario said already, we're going to continue in our series, Way of Wisdom, Part 14. All right? And that, it will take us to chapters 8 and 9. Two chapters at one time. Wow. We will see how this goes, which means that we've hit a milestone of sorts. So if you're one of those people who are really like to reward yourself, go ahead and give yourself a good yes. We've hit a milestone. We're doing something here in, in the middle of a, of a goal that we have. And pat yourself on the back for a job well done. And if you're asking, wait, what's the milestone? Well, it's that Proverbs is divided into two sections. Really, chapters 1 through 9 is one section, and then 10 to 31 is the other section. So by today, at the end of today, we will finish the first section of Proverbs. Yay. Okay, see, now you know. All right, the first nine chapters are of huge importance because they lay the foundation, they lay the framework for the chapters that are going to follow, 10 to 31, and the nearly 800-ish proverbs that are still yet to come. So if you want to know how to understand these proverbs, it's vital that we really understand Proverbs 1 through 9. And today we are going to cover two of those chapters. And I want us to look at, in chapters 8 and 9, wisdom's controversy, wisdom's counsel, wisdom's character, and wisdom's counterfeit. This is kind of broad sections for us as we go. Let's start with wisdom's controversy. Proverbs is one of the books of the Bible that's classified as literature and poetry. You've probably heard that already a time or two. In these first nine chapters, we have the, uh, the genre that's used for each chapter. It's like this. There's an introduction, like, listen, my son, pay attention, my son. And it's accompanied by motivating reasons why the son should listen attentively. And then it's followed by a speech or a lesson or a talk. That's the second part. It's given by a father to his sons, but it's applicable to anyone who hears it or anyone who reads these Proverbs. They were lessons about life, like places to be and places to avoid. Speeches about money, finances, debt, and work ethic. And treating people fairly and following good examples. And marriage and sex and adultery and seduction. And most importantly, seeking wisdom and trusting the Lord. And then, like all good speeches, each chapter ends with a conclusion, usually describing the consequences of listening or not listening to the lesson. Before we begin these final two chapters, I want to remind us of a few things that we must always consider when we are reading literature. There are some things that will throw us into a really tailspin if we don't get this right. Figure of speech, genre, and grammatical gender. First figure of speech, these by definition should not be taken literally. We use them in our everyday language, like, do you have a screw loose? How about, you ever get cold feet making a decision? Have you ever been told, go break a leg? Ever let the cat out of the bag? I mean, like, spill the beans? We use these things all the time. Do you always have an ace up your sleeve? And really, you snooze, you lose? That is so wrong. Because the value of a nap, oh, that is a win. <laughs> right? So we have all these things. Well, let me get to the point before I kick the bucket. You get it? Okay. The point is this. Just like figure of speech we use every day, so does the Bible. 
Let me show you an early one. Genesis 4.10. The Lord said, what have you done? And he was talking to Cain who killed his brother Abel. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Did Abel's blood actually cry out like audibly we could hear it from the ground? Answer, no. The Lord was using a figure of speech called personification to help Cain understand the inescapable nature of sin. When we realize that Abel's blood wasn't actually able to talk, its cry is just a literary figure of speech. We cannot formulate a doctrine that says, well, when you die, you know, blood starts to talk. This may sound like a common sense thing, but believe it or not, people do, and they have tried to make doctrinal statements like this. So we've got to be alert to figure of speech when we are handling God's word in literature sections. In Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman who talks and sees and builds and prepares meals. But wisdom isn't literally a living, breathing lady. Take figure of speech into consideration. Also consider genre. Proverbs 8 is poetry. It's one of the many genres used found in the Bible. And the important thing here for us to consider is if we don't know what we are reading, we will not know how we should read it. If genre is not considered, the reader will most likely miss the author's intent. For example, if we're reading To Kill a Mockingbird, high school assignment, everyone have to do it, right? If you're going to read To Kill a Mockingbird, it's important to understand it's a novel. It's a work of fiction. That understanding helps prevent us like, from seeking out the family history of Atticus as like he was a real person. So when reading the Bible, if we don't understand the author's intent, then we will not understand God's intent, which of course is what matters when it comes to interpreting his word. Proverbs 8 is a specific type of poem. It's a poem of praise. We cannot interpret Bible poetry the same way that we interpret historical narratives or prophecies or apologies apoleptic passages, you just can't do that. Proverbs is artsy. It's an artistic book. And it would be easy to get twisted around if we don't take the genre seriously to help understand what the author's intent is. And then number three, grammatical gender in language. Except for some pronouns, English, we, we do not use grammatical gender. Like, we don't classify words as masculine and feminine. However, Hebrew language does, which is what Proverbs was written. It does use grammatical gender, much like Spanish and French and many other languages, actually. So herein is our problem. She, as we understand it here in English, isn't necessarily the she as it was intended in Hebrew. We naturally think of the noun girl as feminine. We naturally think of the noun boy as masculine. And so then naturally, we assign pronouns to them. She, her, hers, he, him, his for the boy. But when we speak of things like a ship or a car or objects like that, which have no actual gender, we use the pronoun it in its. 
However, this gets really confusing here. We name ships like the USS Ronald Reagan. It's a name of a guy, but it does not affect the gender of the ship. And then to compound matters even more, the sailors on those boats, they'll say things like, look at her. Isn't she a fine-looking ship? Here she comes into the port. Twisted. I mean, how many, maybe you even name your car, how many Betsy's, Bertha's, or Bob's are sitting out there in the parking lot right now? So we, we use English kind of in a, in a half-hearted usage when it comes to gender. But that is not the case in many other languages, including Hebrew. Nouns have strong gender components, but the gender assignment is grammatical and not necessarily indicating physical gender of an object. In Spanish, a guitar is feminine. A car is masculine. But it has nothing to do with literal gender. But it does in grammatical gender. So when we are translating from Hebrew into English, we must consider grammatical gender. In English, the word wisdom is grammatically neutral. In Hebrew, the word is hakmoth. If you really want to say it like you're supposed to, it's like in your throat. Just try it. If I had to, you should do it. Hakmoth. And it's grammatically feminine. I don't know if you wanted to know that or not, but now you do. In Hebrew, it would have been very natural to speak of wisdom as a she. So based on this, it seems highly reasonable that when using personification to describe wisdom, she is the appropriate pronoun to use. Solomon wasn't saying that women are intrinsically wiser than men, though some might hold to that in here, but he wasn't. And and though Solomon had this slightly infatuation with women, you know, the 300 wives, 700 concubine things, it wasn't like he was so possessed with the she word that that's, well, everything was a she to him. That's not the case. It's Hebrew grammatical gender. So we've got to keep these three in mind. Figure of speech, genre, grammatical gender. Because if we don't, they can lead to seriously false teachings. And that's exactly what has happened. And that's why there's a controversy over the years. In Proverbs chapter 8, did you know this? Proverbs chapter 8 is one of those controversial chapters in the Bible. If you have two people who show up to your house, usually wearing a white shirt and a tie and pants, maybe they rode a bike and they are going door to door down your street you are most likely talking to a person who does not believe that Jesus is God. And they will use this chapter as part of their support, and they will use this personification of wisdom in chapter 8 to support their position. And I'm not making light of it. I think it's very serious. Who are these people? Okay, you know them. I'm going to take you right there. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 8, 22 through 31. And I want you to see this. They believe that this passage refers to Jesus in his pre-human existence and that his life began in heaven created by God and that he is lower than God. 
I hope that puts some red flags up for you. Because we don't believe that. We don't believe that that's what the Bible teaches. Solomon has already personified wisdom way back in verse 4, and we will backtrack and get that. But Lady Wisdom is still talking when we reach verse 22. Here it goes. The Lord made me at the beginning of his creation, before his works long ago. I was formed before ancient times, from the beginning. Before the earth began, I was born and there was no watery depths and no springs filled with water. I was delivered before the mountains and the hills were established. Before he made the land, the fields, or the first spoil on the earth, I was there when he established the heavens, when he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean, when he placed the skies above, when the fountains of the ocean gushed out, when he set a limit for the sea so that the waters would not violate his command. When he laid out the foundations of the earth, I was a skilled craftsman beside him. I was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the human race. And when you read a passage like that, you need to ask the question, who's talking? Answer, Solomon. Using personification of wisdom. And her name is Lady Wisdom. We can't literally press Jesus into being Lady Wisdom as if Jesus were create, was a created being. We can't do that. But we can emphatically say that Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. He is the fountainhead of God's wisdom. So we must remember that in this text. It's poetry. It's a metaphor to make points about God's wisdom and his nature of his wisdom. And when people don't take this into consideration, they come up with ideas and they teach things that just aren't true. Here's a summary sentence of the Mormon's belief. Jesus isn't God. He's less than God. Jesus isn't enough for salvation, for your complete your salvation. You must also do good work, so get on your bike and pedal. And if you don't believe in God and you don't do those good works, it's really not that bad at all because hell doesn't exist anyway. They get these decisions, they come to these conclusions in passages like this that we're reading today, and it's because of considering, not considering figure of speech, genre, and gender, grammar, grammatical gender. And it's caused controversy, and it confuses the message of the gospel. So it's imperative. It's important. It's crucial. It's essential. It's urgent that we understand what the author is intending us to know. Move to wisdom's counsel. And let's go back to chapter 1. In chapter 8 here, Solomon the father is giving another speech. He's encouraging his sons to choose wisdom and let me again say, he does it through the use of personification. In his previous speech, he warned his sons to stay away and stay off the path that leads to seduction and destruction and death. Remember that? From 4 through 7, those chapters. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Doesn't wisdom call out? Doesn't understanding make her voice heard? And apparently without waiting for the sons to answer, he answers his own question in verses 2 and 3. At the heights overlooking the road, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Besides the gate at the entry to the city, at the main entrance, she cries out. So what's the answer to his question? Yes. Yep. 
She calls out. She makes her voice of understanding heard. And she's pretty strategic about it as well. She places herself in the high, easy places. She places herself at the busy intersections and at the main entrances where most of the people are coming and going. Guess what? Lady Wisdom wants to be found. She wants to be heard. She does operate the same way as Jesus. She makes it easy for us to find her. She's not playing hide and seek. She positions herself among the masses of people. And verse 4 says, People, I call out to you. My cry is to mankind. So Solomon, being a very intentional dad in teaching his sons, and all of us that are fathers should do the same, but wisdom's cry is to be heard by more than just Solomon's sons. Her cry is for all people, all humanity. And that includes the inexperienced and the foolish. Look at verse 5. Learn to be shrewd, you who are inexperienced. Develop common sense, you who are foolish. Well, who's that? Well, that's all the people who are naive, immature, all the people who have made mistakes. I'm wondering if we could just, if you're in that group at all, raise your hand. Oh, it's for us. It's all for us. And Lady Wisdom tells Solomon's sons and all of us who have made mistakes, learn to be shrewd, which means learn to be discerning, learn to be smart in making decisions. For example, back to chapter 7. Lady Wisdom says, you got to know that sex outside of marriage is like being a dumb ox on the way to the slaughter. He is clueless. He just thinks that little bucket of grains is, oh, this is good. They're treating me so nicely. Like the deer going to the trap. Oh, look at all this nice corn. It's just right here for me. Until an arrow goes through its liver. Lady Wisdom wants us to know that if you miss her, if you miss wisdom, it will cost you your life. You got to have this kind of common sense. In verses 6 through 9, she says, listen up. Listen, for I speak of noble things, and what my lips say is right. For my mouth tells the truth, and wickedness is detestable to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. None of them are deceptive or perverse. All of them are clear to the perceptive and right to those who discover knowledge. Why should we listen to Lady Wisdom? Because she's a really good influence on us. She's a really good example for us to learn and to follow. She speaks of moral things. She speaks of excellent things. She speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Which means she avoids talking about perverted things and untruthful things. She doesn't lie. If you want to know if you're on the right road of wisdom, listen to how you talk. Ask somebody to listen to you talk for a week or a day or an hour and have them give you a summary report. Lady Wisdom knows nothing of being a gossip, nothing of spreading rumors. 
Oh, I am telling you, we need to find people who talk like Lady Wisdom and hang out with them as much as we can. Verses 10 and 11, Lady Wisdom says something that sounds radically different than what we find in our culture today. Accept my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than pure gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and nothing desirable can compare to it. There's nothing wrong with silver. There's nothing wrong with pure gold. But Lady Wisdom says, if your choice is between silver or wisdom's instruction, pick wisdom's instruction. Nothing wrong with pure gold, but if your choice is between pure gold and knowledge, accept her knowledge, because nothing that we could ever desire compares with her. In my Bible, do I really believe that? Question mark. Because, like, in my head, uh, okay, but my actions, often they seem to say otherwise. Like, I can tell you, it's easy, it's easy to preach that and just say it. Love wisdom. Don't worry about gold. I don't find myself living that way consistently all the time. Why is that? I'm going to tell you, but not till we get to chapter 9. Hold that. For now, I want us to move to verses 12 to 31 and see wisdom's character. And for this section, I I want to ask a question after each verse or section of verses for us to take to heart and just consider personally. Um, I'm so thankful for people in my life who have taught me um, how to read the Bible at times. And one of the very first lessons I got was this. When you read, see what it says about God, and then ask, how will this impact and change my life? Those two things are really big when it comes to reading the Bible. And I want to just kind of walk through that process with these, this big section of verses, starting in verse 12. I, wisdom, share a home with shrewdness and have knowledge and discretion. She has discerning friends. It's like shrewdness is her roommate. And, and they are like, like-minded in integrity. Question, do my closest friends value discernment? Verse 13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I, wisdom, hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. Do I hate these things? How much do I allow this in my life? Either personally practice or I tolerate from outsiders or outside things like movies and books and other entertainments that I choose to consume. You can't say that you hate something and then watch it all the time. Verse 14, I, wisdom, possess good advice and competence. I have understanding and strength. Good advice, competence, and understanding. I think we can easily understand how wisdom does that. But do I ever think of wisdom as strength? Like, I know what physical strength looks like, but strength of a good mind that makes good decisions. I want to think like that. Verse 15, it is by me that kings reign and rulers enact a just law. By me, princes princes lead and do nobles and all righteous judges. The most powerful people 
Most powerful humans on the earth are generally rulers and people in offices of authority. So it's no surprise that wisdom is right there with this group. Made me think, do I pray for my elected officials? And pray specifically that they would be full of this kind of wisdom. And not full of a bunch of other stuff. Full of wisdom. 17, I, wisdom, love those who love me, and those who search for me find me. With me are riches and honor, lasting wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than solid gold, and my harvest better than pure silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, giving wealth as an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Do I love wisdom and search for her as described like the Bible says? Is my trust in the wealth and the stuff of this world, including myself, like I'm all that, like I could figure this out? Or is it in the trust of wisdom and riches, her riches and her honor and her righteousness and the inheritance promised by her? And I know we've read 22 to 31, but it's really worth reading again so I want to do that. The Lord made me at the beginning of his creation before his works of long ago. I, wisdom, was formed before ancient times from the beginning before the earth began. I, wisdom, was born when there was no watery depths and no springs filled with water. I, wisdom, was delivered before the mountains and the hills were established, before he made the land, the fields, or the first soil of earth. I, wisdom, was there when he established the heavens, when he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean, when he placed the skies above, when the fountains of the ocean gushed out, when he set a limit for the sea so that the waters would not violate his command, when he laid out the foundations of the earth. I, wisdom, was a skilled craftsman beside him. I, wisdom, was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him. I, wisdom, was rejoicing in the inhabited world, delighting in the human race. Do I marvel in astonishment of his creation? I hope I can never see a sunrise or a sunset that I don't just say, oh, God. I don't want to be ever too busy to miss those things. And I certainly don't want to miss how wisdom thinks of you and me, verse 31. He delights in the human race. Do I believe Wisdom delights over the human race. Specifically, he delights, she delights over me? You really should think that way because it's true. And then the last five verses end in similar fashion like Solomon's other's lessons with a conclusion that's built upon a consequence, a positive consequence for obedience and a negative consequence for disobedience. Verse 32, And now, my sons, listen to me. Those who keep my ways are happy. Listen to the instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Anyone who listens to me is happy, watching at my doors every day, waiting by the post of my doorway. For the one who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Positive consequence. But the one who misses me harms himself. All who hate me love death. Negative 
consequence. Solomon has spent these first eight chapters teaching his kids, encouraging them, warning them of two ways to live. And when we get to chapter 9, we find wisdom's counterfeit. And that chapter 9 has a decision. It's decision time. A decision needs to be made. Choose the lady named wisdom and her path, or choose the lady named folly, wisdom's counterfeit, and her path. Chapter 9 makes like this spreadsheet for us, a comparison between these two ladies. And the implication is, choose, pick, decide, whose way will you follow? Twelve verses. Each lady gets six verses. And I want to just end this sermon by reading these verses and then make the simple compare and contrast for us. First, Lady Wisdom, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has carved out her seven pillars. She has prepared her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her female servants. She called out from the highest points of the city, whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, come, eat my bread and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave inexperience behind and you will live. Pursue the way of understanding. Now, Lady Folly, verses 13 to 18. The woman Folly is rowdy. She is gullible and knows nothing. She sits by the doorway of her house on the seat at the highest point of the city, calling to those who pass by, who go straight ahead on their paths. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten secretly is tasty. But he does not know that the departed spirits are there that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So by comparison, both of the ladies, we have that chart? Can you put that chart up there for me? There it comes, right? Both are personified as ladies, but neither is a real person. Both have a house. Both can be found in the highest place of the city. Both cry out. Both have a message. Both have an agenda. Both are trying to reach the very same audience, the very same kind of people. Both offer food, and both lead to an end result. That's what they have in common. Like they say the exact same thing in their message. Did you see that? Now here is the contrast. Lady Wisdom has understanding and knowledge of the likes to build her own home. Lady Folly has knows nothing, is gullible and rowdy. Lady Wisdom has a description of her home. She has carved out seven pillars. I'm not exactly sure what the seven pillars entails, but the seven is a number of completion. So, so maybe it's a reference to Lady Wisdom, like I'm the real deal, I'm the real complete deal. It certainly sounds majestic and sophisticated, strong and secure. I mean, how many... Pillars does your house have? You know, it's strong. It's the mindset. Lady Folly, she doesn't have a description of her house. I don't know why. It's just, it's not there. Lady Wisdom has a strong work ethic. It's indicated by her preparing meals, and mixing wine, and setting the table for her expected guest. Lady Folly, she sits. Lady Wisdom leads, and she has helpers to assist her with her mission and her purpose. 
And Lady Wisdom offers her own bread and wine, and it's enjoyed together, and it's in open. Lady Folly offers stolen bread, and water is consumed secretly, which would then go back to our earlier chapters of the seduction. Lady Wisdom's path leads to understanding and life. Lady Folly's path leads to destruction and death. Which lady do you choose? I mean, it's so obvious, right? Who in their right mind would want to choose a path of destruction and death when there is an opportunity to choose a path of understanding and life? My answer is only what I can find from the Bible, which says it's natural. It's the preset default mode for us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Why do people not pick lady wisdom? Why do they pick lady folly? their natural bent. It's our natural bent. Even in our salvation, way too many times do we rubberneck at Lady Folly. We're like, oh, what's going on over there? I'm kind of impressed with that. We get deceived by her in all of her ways. So easily we seem to fall for that. Why do we do that? Why do we choose the silver and the gold over the instruction and the knowledge? Why does that go on? Because, beloved, 1 John 3, 2. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Why is it that we still struggle with this? Because we're still under construction. God's still working in us. Now listen, this is not an excuse. Oh, well, I can't help myself, so I'll just go do it. It is not the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is Lady Wisdom helps us not be like that. No way is it commendable. Should we continue in sin that grace should abound? No, God forbid. Jesus preached a sermon to people who were searching and trying to decide which path to choose. Just about like Proverbs chapter 9. He said in Matthew chapter 7, Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Down to verse 24. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand." The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. And its collapse was great. Today is a day, pick and choose which way to follow.
And I'll just leave you with one more of our modern figure speech you've probably heard. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And that might be true advice for some areas of life, but when it comes to the teaching of the Bible, it is put all your eggs in one basket. Put your faith, all your trust, all of you in the promises of Jesus Christ. Choose him. Let's pray. Father, your word is so brilliant to us, and I would ask that you would make it come alive. Let your spirits do its work in that way to both believer and unbeliever who may be with us today. Let it, let it be such a sharp sword that it does indeed change us. So whatever, whatever steps that you would need to take for us to live and learn and apply these, I humbly and yet boldly ask that you would do so and that we would be soft and not hard-hearted. Lord, I ask that your name would be glorified, would be made much of, worshiped and adored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.